<clears throat> well, please uh, take a copy of God's Word uh, with me this morning and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 9. <clears throat> but as you're turning there, let me say uh, it is great to be back. Uh, I missed being with all of you, and I've been looking forward with eager expectation to being together once again in God's Word. And for the rest of this year, the plan is to reflect on Jesus' incarnation and who he is as our God and Savior. But before we dive right into that, uh, I thought it might be helpful to explain why we might be doing this. Uh, First, a little bit of history. I think it's always helpful to know a little bit about our own tradition. Guys like... uh, Calvin and uh, Bootser and Knox were all together committed to the principle that says that um, nothing is permissible in worship unless it's explicitly commanded by God in Scripture. And yet those same guys affirming that principle also found it helpful while they set aside so much of what had come to be known as the church calendar by that time, they nevertheless found it helpful to retain what they called the five evangelical feasts. Things like Christmas, uh, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. They found it pastorally helpful in the regular rhythm of an annual year to have a special focus on these high points of the life and ministry of uh, Jesus Christ. So they weren't arguing that the Bible commands observance of days. They weren't coming up with extra biblical rules. The Lord's Day is the only day commanded by God for Christians. But they found that punctuating the calendar year with seasons of particular focus on Christ in key moments in his life and ministry could indeed be helpful for God's people to think about the incarnation, to dwell upon his passion, uh, his resurrection, uh, his enthronement and, and his ascension and his outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost. They found this to be helpful for God's people. Now, the reason I mention that It's because in recent years, I've had conversations with different Christians, indeed some of you, who've got different opinions about what to make of Christmas. There are some on the one hand who think that celebrating Christmas is, is in a sense, obligatory for Christians. If you're a Christian, it's, it's what you do. In fact, it's what you're supposed to do. And... To that, I would say, not so fast. (laughs) God has left our consciences free from the doctrines and commandments of men, uh, from anything that is beside the word of God, right? But if you want to say that I think it's helpful to have times where we focus on the person and the work of Christ and the significant moments in his life, then I'm, I'm wholeheartedly with you. So some, though, would turn Christmas into a kind of binding obligation for Christians. But I think another extreme exists in our own circles. I've 
had conversations with others who would say something like, well, because the, the scriptures don't talk about Christmas, we shouldn't have anything to do with it. And I think some even wear that as a kind of badge of honor. And for my own part, I find that needlessly narrow. Why, why, wouldn't, why would we not want something to do with reflecting on the person and the work of Christ in these pivotal moments in his ministry? Christians in the past, Reformed Christians, found it to be good for the people of God to reflect on the meaning of the incarnation, the significance of his suffering, the significance of his resurrection and ascension, and uh, the, the uh, outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. So I think, on the one hand, uh, this gives us a, an opportunity together as a church in a focused way to reflect upon what, what, what do we mean by the incarnation and what does it mean for our lives as the people of God. On the other hand, I, I think there's a, another opportunity here for us as well. If we're going to be sensitive to the culture in which we live, I think it's still correct to say that there's an, enough of a residual message of Christianity in our culture that perhaps people are more likely to come out to church this time of the year than they are any other time of the year. And so I think we have, I think we have an evangelistic opportunity before us that we ought to seize. And so I, I, one of the things I want to do is remind you, we, we should be doing this all year, but I want to remind you and encourage you, especially this time of the year, to be thinking about friends or neighbors, family members that you might invite to come out to church to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, so with all of that, uh, the remaining Sundays in 2021, I want us to focus on the first advent, the first appearance, the first coming of Jesus Christ into the world. I honestly, I can't think of a better way to end the year together than to reflect on the mystery of the word made flesh. I hope it will be encouraging to us as God's people. And as I said, I hope we'll also see this as an opportunity in the year to speak to friends and family and neighbors and invite them to come out and to consider the good news of Christ. That being said, if you haven't already, take uh, your Bible and look at Isaiah chapter 9 with me. The plan is, uh, we'll read Isaiah 9 verses 2 through 7 here in just a moment. And for the next three Sundays, and Lord willing, on Christmas Eve, we're going to consider one of the four names or titles ascribed to Christ in this passage. If you look at verse 6, you'll see those names, a wonderful counselor. Mighty God, <clears throat> Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So each week we'll take one of those titles and meditate on it together. And this morning we're going to take a look at Jesus Christ as our wonderful counselor. So let's turn our attention now to hearing God's word from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, the child promised in Isaiah 9, the son that is to be given, is called a Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful. And that, that's a word that we hear a lot this time of the year, isn't it? After all, it's a, the most wonderful time of the year, right? Uh, chances are it's a wonderful life. We'll be playing on TV a lot in the next couple of weeks. Wonderful. A counselor. Counselor, uh, may, maybe somebody that you, you need to see after the stress of the coming holiday. Actually, as we'll see later on this morning, that's, that's actually not the imagery that we should have in mind as Isaiah talks about a counselor. But I'm just trying to get you to think about this language that Isaiah is using here. Wonderful counselor. When you, when you put those two words together, it actually sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Wonderful is well, something, something delightful. A counselor is someone you might speak to in a time of crisis. At least that's how we use the language today. So as we try to make sense of this, though, we want to we ask, what, what was Isaiah seeking to communicate in this title? What is God telling us about the identity of this child that is to be given and speaking of him as wonderful counselor? Well, let's think about this in the context of what Isaiah has been saying. We'll do a little bit of concentric circles here, Bob. Um, back in chapter 8, Isaiah pronounces some dire predictions of coming suffering for the people of God. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 22, you'll see and get a sense of just how dire it is. It says, they will look to the earth, but behold... Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's powerful imagery, isn't it? Have you, have you ever experienced thick darkness? I was in high school, I used to go splunking uh, with friends, and we would go to a place called Bear's Cave um, out near Blairsville. I don't know if that's still open or not, but... We'd go in there for hours, and you'd get so far in that you could, you know, turn off your light, and 
You, you couldn't see a thing. There wasn't a bit of light there. Thick darkness. That's the imagery here. But then in chapter 9, it's as though the sun is coming up. There's a message of hope. So notice, notice the contrast. In chapter 9, verse 2, instead of thick darkness... Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And in verse 3, we have joy instead of sorrow. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy after the harvest. It's hard for us to appreciate that since we don't really live in an agricultural community. But where your life really depends On the gathering of a harvest, you can imagine the joy that ensues in a successful harvest. Rejoice before the Lord, and they're glad when they divide the spoil. So from from gloom and sorrow and anguish to joy. Then in verses 4 and 5, notice another contrast from freedom to, or from oppression to freedom. The rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian, and so on. In other words, he's saying war will cease. There will be peace at last. Liberty for the captives. And when you put all of this together, uh, darkness, light, anguish, joy, captivity, and freedom, it is an astounding reversal Isaiah is describing for God's people. It's the dawn of hope. A time of joy is coming, he says. And notice then that the the inauguration of this reversal, this great change that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish for the people of God is centered and grounded in the birth of a child. In the giving of a son. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now if there was any question about how we should understand this. Matthew in his gospel. Matthew chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. Tells us outright. That these words were fulfilled. In the birth of Mary's boy. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the child whose birth is the reversal for those walking in thick darkness to seeing a great light. For those who have been plunged into sorrow and suffering, being brought to rejoicing before the Lord. And those who are in bondage and captivity being set free to liberty. So then the question we have to ask then is is how? How is it that the birth of a child could affect such an incredible reversal? What, What is it about this child that makes all the difference in the world? That makes this the turning point for all of those who put their trust in him? And I want to suggest to you today and in the weeks to come that we have the answer to that question in verse 6 in the names or the titles that are given to this child. Now in the ancient world, it was a common practice that when kings ascended to 
their, their throne to reign, when their, their reign was inaugurated, that additional names and titles were, were given to them as programmatic descriptions of their kingship, the nature of their reign. And I think that's how we're meant to understand these names, these titles given to Christ here in Isaiah chapter 9. These are descriptions of who he is and the nature of his reign. Each name, you'll notice, has two parts to it, right? Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And we'll consider both aspects as we work our way through this in the weeks to come. Today, we're going to focus, as I said, on Wonderful Counselor. So let's start with the word wonderful. What is being communicated when this child promised is called wonderful. To be honest, I think uh, we have a bit of a challenge here, not because this is a bad translation of the Hebrew text, but because of how we often use the word wonderful in our speech today. We often use the word wonderful subjectively, don't we? Something is wonderful if it inspires us or if it fills us with a sense of wonder. And with, with that sense of wonderful in mind, we, we might speak of Jesus as, well, he's a, he's a really great counselor, and so he's wonderful. And that's true as far as it goes, but I don't actually think that's what Isaiah intends to communicate in Isaiah chapter 9. The, the Hebrew word behind this that's translated wonderful means something more like um, miraculous or even, even supernatural. So, for example, in uh, Psalm 78, verse 12, we read this, that in the sight of Israel's fathers, God performed wonders. There's the word. Mighty works in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through and let the waters stand up like a heap. Okay, so, so the exodus and the events surrounding it, uh, the miraculous sovereign intervention of God in redeeming his people out of bondage in Egypt is a great wonder. It's how the Bible describes it. In Judges 13 verse 18, we've got another use of this word, <coughs> wonder or wonderful. The angel of the Lord comes to Manoah, and Manoah asks the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord replies, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In other words, why ask my name when it is far above your natural capacity to even comprehend? Because it's because it's transcendent because there's something supernatural about it now with that in mind understood wonderful understood in this way I think we are ready to recognize wonderful really is a perfect description of Jesus Christ isn't it as Isaiah tells us here he was a child who was born he was a real man a real human being, and and yet more. He was supernaturally conceived and and born of the Virgin Mary, filled with the Spirit, 
beyond measure. He merely spoke and storms ceased. The sick were healed. The blind received sight. The deaf heard. The dead were raised to life. I like what E.J. Young says about this. He says, and this is a quote from him, the Old Testament usage of the word for, for wonderful compels us to the conclusion that it here designates the Messiah not merely as someone extraordinary, but as one who in his very person and being is a wonder. He surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. C.J. Young. See, he, he is wonderful, not, not merely in the sense that he's special or inspiring. He's wonderful not simply because he vo- evokes in us a sense of wonder and awe. He is himself a great wonder. He is astonishing, we could say. And he is worthy of our admiration and our adoration. He is a child born to us who is, as we'll think about next time, Almighty God. And you see, in in light of that, we can begin to appreciate and understand why it's right to say that no one else other than this one could effect the great reversal that Isaiah has described for the people of God. A people in darkness, in anguish, And in captivity at the end of chapter 8. And in chapter 9, bathed in great light, full of joy and set free. See, no ordinary child could bring about such a transformation for God's people. See, the pivot on which lives are changed comes through the birth of this great wonder. The true light who said in the beginning, let there be light. And there was light. The light of the world that has come into the world. The word who was with God in the beginning and who was God. He and he alone can bring us out of this thick darkness that Isaiah describes. To be brought into his Marvelous light. He he alone can come to us and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he alone can set the captives free. Light and joy and freedom are his to give. See, he is a great wonder. He is, we can say, wonderful. And take a look with me now at the, the next word in this first title. Of counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. Now, it's not saying that Jesus is a great therapist, nothing against therapists. But the image here is not of a counseling room where you're receiving great counsel from from a therapist. Get that imagery out of your mind. The imagery here that we ought to have in mind is of a throne room. Of a king seated upon his throne, making righteous and just judgments. 
That's the imagery that Isaiah wants us to have in mind here. This is the king. Think about this. Earthly rulers have counselors, right? Or those who think that they don't need the counsel of others, they, they go at it on their own. But you've, you've this idea of counselors offering guidance, lending some wisdom for uh, crit- critical decisions that need to be made. Or think about the history of Israel's kings for, for a few moments. That's some examples of wise kings and foolish kings. In terms of wise kings, of course, you, you think of Solomon, who was renowned for his, uh, for his wisdom, his God-given wisdom, and yet even Solomon at times made foolish decisions, didn't he? And then you have, you have kings like Ahaz, who was uh, uh, ruling during the time Isaiah wrote, and Ahaz, he had a kind of worldly wisdom, but in the end he proved to be incompetent. See, the story of Israel's kings, among other things that are being communicated, is the story of our need for a wise king. Because earthly rulers are sometimes wise and sometimes fools. Sometimes their insights can be right on, and and sometimes they are tragically wide of the mark, and sometimes they're they're given over to to self-interest, sometimes they're devoted to, you know, lust for power and just hanging on to the power that they possess, sometimes their ideals are just misplaced, and in the end they end up hurting a lot of people. And Isaiah wants us to see This one who is promised, in contrast to all of that, this Jesus Christ, this child who was to be born, Jesus isn't like any of them. He is a king who needs no counselors and whose wisdom is not subject to compromise. And I don't know about you, but I I find this to be wonderfully good news when you think about it, because we... We live in a time, don't we, when a lot, of us, a lot of us find it difficult to trust our elected officials, don't we? Cynicism abounds, and understandably so. Hypocrisy among elected officials is just blatantly obvious. Bias is just taken as a given today. Corruption is undeniable, and decisions are made regularly that lack wisdom and insight. Decisions today are often made just to virtue signal, uh, just to declare your position on a particular social issue. Decisions are sometimes made by elected officials who, um, who want to appear to be on the right side of history, right? Decisions are made that perhaps in the short term appear to be doing something good for people, but in the long run will do a lot of harm. And so as we look at Isaiah 9, we're we're being reminded here not to put our hope in in mere men whose, whose best and most sincere efforts are inevitably flawed. Being reminded not to trust the Ahazes of this world with any kind of ultimate trust or confidence. Instead, we're being invited to trust the wonderful counselor, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been given the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, Isaiah tells us in chapter 11. And so unlike every earthly ruler, he does not judge merely by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. Isaiah says, with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. Paul Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see what that means for us, dear friends? It means that you can trust and rely on this king. He is his own counselor and we can trust him to rule in righteousness and in justice. And so Jesus is the great wonder whose counsel will guide our steps reliably. And dear friends, as the Lord Jesus, as our king, rules over us in this life, he, he rules over us by his word and spirit. And therefore, we can rest assured that he will establish our steps and that his word will be a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path even as we live in a dark place. Because in his light, we see light. He is a wonderful counselor that you can trust. And he's wonderful. He's he's a wonder because this child who is called Almighty God is a son who is given, born, As a man, he is truly and fully man. And you see what that means. It means, at the very least, he he knows our frame. He has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and so he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. It means Jesus knows you. And it means that he knows you not not just by virtue of divine omniscience, but by virtue of the solidarity and the the empathy of his humanity. And as we try to plumb the depths of the mystery of, you know, what what does that mean for us as we think about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us as our Savior, I think one of the things we need to recognize is it means that like the people of God at the end of chapter 8, who are plunged into thick darkness and the gloom of anguish, that he too was thrust into outer darkness on the cross, bearing the curse of sin, sin we were guilty of. He plumbed the depths of sorrow when he cried out in dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think we can even say that in a sense, as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 6, that for a time he came under the power of sin, the power of sin which is death, in order to set his people free. You see, in other words, he has been in Thick darkness, bearing 
the weight of sin, not his own, but ours, so that we could know and be brought into his light. He has suffered anguish, being cut off for our transgressions, so that we might know the joy of his salvation. And he came under the dominion of sin, the dominion of death, in order to break its hold on us, so that we might have life and liberty. You see, dear friends, our wonderful counselor is God's wise answer to our threefold problem darkness and suffering and enslavement. And Jesus is God's perfect answer to that, bringing light and joy and freedom in its place. So whatever our problem, whether the guilt of sin or the paralysis of fear or the pain of loss or the sorrow of loneliness or the grief of death, we find in Jesus a wonderful counselor who hears and understands and has grace for pardon and and is able to cleanse and comfort and uphold us even as every other earthly resource runs dry. He's a wonderful counselor, an all-sufficient Savior. And so I want to ask you very simply this morning, have you seen this great light, the light of the world, shining in the darkness? Have you tasted the joy and discovered real freedom that comes in knowing this wonderful counselor as your savior and your king. If, if you haven't, I, I want to invite you this morning to stop living on the base, uh, basis of your best guesses and your own threadbare wisdom and to find in Jesus Christ everything you need. There's a wonderful counselor that God has provided. He will, he will guide your steps and keep you till the very, very end. And his name is Jesus. You can trust him. He is a wonderful counselor. And please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we Thank you for the promise of a child to be born. And we thank you that in your grace, you have kept that promise and given a son, your very own son, uh, to be to us a wonderful counselor. And we pray that by your spirit, you would turn us away from worldly wisdom, turn us away from trying to live on the basis of our own wisdom, and turn us to the one who possesses every treasure of knowledge and wisdom. Turn us to the one who is a wonder and a counselor and cause us to put our trust in him and him alone. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.